This is Guns and Butter. I would not say this is a time of celebration. I would say this is a time to get us active, uh, to be fighting for fundamental rights. I never thought I'd be saying we had to fight for the fundamental right of habeas corpus, or the right not to be wiretapped, or the right to be charged before you could be held in prison. Uh, I would never have thought I'd have to say that. But this July 4th is really a time to say these are the rights we have as people, uh, and we are determined to get them back. I would say it's a very, very dark time uh, in terms of the the protections of the Constitution and the amendments, uh, both in terms of individual liberty as well as in terms of of the restrictions on governmental power. And it's really a time to energize ourselves and say, we will not let this Constitution and the rights embodied in it be taken from us. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michael Ratner. Today's show... The Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Michael Ratner is president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, a nonprofit human rights litigation organization in New York City. He has led the center in its aggressive legal fight against the post-9-11 violations of civil liberties by the Bush administration. He was part of the small group of lawyers that first took on representation of the Guantanamo detainees in January 2001, a case that went to the Supreme Court where a major victory was won in June 2004. The Center for Constitutional Rights has also filed cases on behalf of Bagram detainees challenging the Military Commissions Act that purportedly abolishes the writ of habeas corpus. He and his colleagues continue to represent hundreds of Guantanamo detainees and coordinate some 500 attorneys across the country on their behalf. Michael Ratner, welcome. Nice to be here, Bonnie. Well, it's July the 4th, 2007, another July the 4th that everyone's going to be celebrating. And of course, that was the date of the Declaration of Independence, July the 4th, 1776. I wanted to read a couple of lines from that declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for their future security. Do you think that this government evinces a design to reduce us under absolute despotism? Well, it's certainly, the Declaration of Independence is certainly a revolutionary statement, really saying, in the end, the power belongs to the people, and to the extent that a government is in power that is a despotic government, you have a right to throw that government off. Of course, in the case of the of the revolutionists in the 
battle for independence, that they did it through violence. Of course, they first made a declaration, and they didn't know it would necessarily lead to violence. The answer now is, of course, it seems to me that the whole push toward impeachment is an illustration that the government we're faced with right now, the Bush administration, and sadly a lot of the members of Congress who line up alongside it, uh, is despotic in many, many respects in this country. The freedoms that we've held dear uh, for a very long time that have been often dishonored as well, but certainly in this administration, I think, uh, certainly in my legal career, uh, a heightened uh, dishonoring of very fundamental rights, uh, particularly, of course, for uh, people around the world, from war to Guantanamo, uh, but the people here as well. And they've been able to appoint a Supreme Court that goes along with a lot of their initiatives. Uh, we can go through some of that, but just I can just think one comes to mind that, that is considered tyranny, essentially, which is the idea that you can warrantlessly wiretap uh, any American citizen without even going to a court. Uh, that's a pretty extraordinary power. It's one that's impeachable. It's one that's despotic. Uh, it's one that the founders would have certainly, not just because they didn't know about wiretapping, but the idea that you could spy on, intrude on people without going to court is pretty shocking. Well, they got pretty far for some uh, insurgents fighting a superpower, that's for sure. They certainly did. They did quite well, in fact. And, of course, it does show you that you can't impose that kind of uh, yoke on people without there being resistance. And, of course, the best analogy we have right now is probably the invasion and conquest of Iraq and the fight going on by the insurgents in Iraq uh, against this imperial power. You know, one thing that I always think about on July 4th is Frederick Douglass' speech. You know, Frederick Douglass, of course, I'm sure most of your listeners know, uh, was a freed slave. And in 1852, he gave this amazing speech, which uh, I recommend to people on July 4th. And what he asks, uh, he says, this 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. And then he goes on to say, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him, more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he, the slave, is a constant victim. So when I think about that speech, Douglas saying, what is your 4th of July? What is this promise all men created equal? And he says, while you at the same time have slavery, uh, it's actually a cruel mockery of me to even be speaking to you on July 4th. And when I thought about what Douglas said, and I thought about, you know, our clients at Guantanamo and the abolishment of the right to go to court or the writ of habeas corpus or the use of torture, I thought to myself, what to those people at Guantanamo uh, is our July 4th and this, this language of equality? The Constitution of the United States begins... We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So the Constitution begins, we, the people. It doesn't say, we, the captains of industry, or we, the oligarchs, or we, the owners, what does this say to you? Well, of course, you know, I think as probably a lot of us know, the Constitution was written by white men who were very property. And at the same time it was written by them, they also were partaking of the sort of, what's the way to say this, the enlightenment in the air and putting forth these broad principles of equality, despite the fact that, of course, the Constitution 
allowed slavery to continue, uh, didn't have women vote, didn't have men, didn't have property vote. So it was an unequal document in its inception, but it had language that that really talked about the foundation of liberty as being we the people. And it's a crucial phrase, just as used a similar phrase in the Declaration of Independence. It really means in the end, uh, it's not, as you said, the captains of industry who have the power. It's not even the representatives in Congress. It's not even the president, and it's not the Supreme Court. But power stems from the people, and government is there to guarantee issues like equality to people. And what it's really saying is it's something that that you could say that many well-known progressives say today is that we will not change this country until we start from the bottom and start from the power of the people and begin to change the grassroots. And the idea that somehow um, you know, one of the two parties in Washington are going to change things in this country really for the better uh, is unlikely, but that power rests with the people. And to the extent we don't take that power up, that we don't act on that power, um, we are, are really should be held responsible for what has gone on in this country. And, of course, the Constitution included seven articles. It set up the balance of power, the legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch, which were supposed to share power. But, of course, there was no Bill of Rights, and that came a little bit later as ten amendments to the Constitution. And I thought we might go through a lot of those amendments in the Bill of Rights and see where we're at presently. So, Bonnie, before we go there, we should talk about the structure of the government, because you're right. I mean, we all learn this in our high schools and all this about balancing checks and balances and the legislature and the executive and the judiciary. And yes, the Constitution was set up so that one person, the president, couldn't become more powerful than the Congress and could be checked, and the court could be a check on the Congress and the president, uh, etc. And there was the idea of balanced power, even though it was balanced power among a certain elite class in the country. And what I think we've seen today when we think about July 4th is we've seen that really, really destroyed. And I'd say it's been destroyed, you know, throughout history uh, since then, but certainly since since 9-11, when President Bush and the Bush administration has asserted that it has the power, even though it's only one branch, to essentially do anything it wants in the name of national security, that it cannot be checked by Congress and it cannot be checked by the court. And they say that with regard to the issue of torture. We can torture in the name of national security. They say that in the issue of Guantanamo, we can imprison people without trial uh, forever. They say that on the issue of Iraq, that we won't take a timetable for Iraq. Uh, We can do what we want. We're the commander-in-chief in a time of war, and there's no checks and balances. So even before we go to the first ten amendments, we can talk about, really, I consider among probably the most serious crisis of our Constitution um, in our history, in the sense that the President has now taken to himself, through those measures that I've talked about, plus signing statements, some 750 pieces of legislation that he has said, um, I don't have to go with what Congress is saying here. I'm issuing a statement saying that basically I am the law. And the last time we saw someone say, I am the law, maybe not the last time, but one that comes out, of course, is is Nazi Germany, and it was called the Fuhrer's Law, where whatever the Fuhrer said was the law. And that's essentially what President Bush has asserted through signing statements and the other instances. So one thing we should all think about this July 4th is how far away we've come from an idea of a government uh, that has any kind of a balance to it. Of course, in addition to that, 
you also have, because it was a powerful president, and not only Republican Congress, but some Democrats who laid down on the job, um, that you then got the president's ability to appoint some people to the Supreme Court who are now giving us, as we go through the amendments, some very, very negative rulings, even within the last year, that are essentially disastrous uh, for fundamental rights. And you've gotten a Congress, even though democratically controlled, that hasn't been willing to really assert itself and try and get back some of our liberty. So even before we get to the Ten Amendments, we have this serious problem of what you would have to call a tyrannical presidency. Yes, and also before we get to the Ten Amendments, I wanted to mention that in December of 2005, Doug Thompson, publisher of Capitol Hill Blue, uh, says that he talked to three people present uh, the month prior when Republican congressional leaders met with President Bush in the Oval Office to talk about renewing the Patriot Act. That act passed by legislators who hadn't read it in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, has, of course, been criticized as containing unconstitutional elements. All these GOP publications quote their president as saying, stop throwing the Constitution in my face. It's just a goddamn piece of paper. And, of course, we have no way of knowing if this was really said by George W. Bush, but, of course, it was posted everywhere on the Internet. Uh, what about the Constitution just being a piece of paper? Well, it's certainly not that. I mean, one of the things that has, you know, made us at least have some stronger sense of civil liberties for many years than what we all rely on is that the Constitution is really binding on the president, binding on Congress, and binding on the court. And we can talk, argue about what it means, uh, but it's certainly not just a piece of paper. The president is not allowed to go beyond the bounds of the Constitution, nor is Congress nor is the court. So that is, it is much more than a piece of paper. It is really saying these are the limits of what this government can do to its citizens and others around the world. So, for example, when it says Congress has the power to declare war, it means that Congress and only Congress can declare war, and the president cannot do so on its own. When it says the people are protected uh, from unwarranted searches in their homes, it means that they're protected and the president can't send the FBI in or the CIA into someone's home without going to a court or, or wiretap them without going to a court. So it's actually it's what you would call the fundamental law of this country, and it's not something that can be discarded at will. Now, whether the president actually said those words or not is sort of irrelevant because he's actually acted on that basis. He's acted on the basis as if the Constitution is not fundamental law, and that he can actually discard it uh, as he wishes, and that is what he's done. I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So let's take a look at the first ten amendments to the Constitution, which are referred to as the Bill of Rights. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition government for a redress of grievances. So that First Amendment covers a lot, free speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion. How are we doing with that one? Well, we're not doing so well is the sad truth of it. I mean, we've, I think we've all seen, certainly since 9-11, 
the incredible restrictions on protests in this country. Um, and it comes in a number of directions, of course. The big protest here in New York on February 15th against the Second Iraq War uh, was really not allowed to proceed. There people are, as people see in demonstrations all over the, the world, all over the country right now, people are put into pens, they're denied permits to go back to certain places. Uh, people will remember the mass arrests that took place in New York at the Republican National Convention, where they had a, created what they called a Guantanamo on the Hudson, and they rounded up hundreds, maybe thousands of people, kept them in a place without taking them to court for three, four, five days. That case is still on a contempt uh, for the city. People know what happened in, in Florida when there was a, uh, forgot the convention that was in Florida, but the convention that was in Florida, again, heavy, massive surveillance, uh, protests, etc. People sure remember the Oakland protests when wooden bullets were used against people. So if we're talking about the key to me of the First Amendment, one of the keys is the right what's called to petition your government. And that means the right to engage in massive protests unfettered from government stopping of those protests. We've seen the government attempt to stop it. We've seen, you know, of course, revelations about the Pentagon uh, and other government agencies going into peaceful protest groups, putting informants in them, doing surveillance on them, and essentially trying to destroy a protest movement in this country. Because as the policies of war, of torture, gain, there's more and more an economic deprivation gain, there's more and more protest, and the government uh, has, has really undercut that severely. So, for example, we had a case in New York stemmed out of the 1970s and the massive amount of infiltration that took place into progressive movements. And the police were restricted from doing all kinds of things. After 9-11, the judges lifted all those orders. The police were allowed to do a whole bunch of surveillance again. So again, that, that's one of the key ones. But you can go to, you know, go to the other areas. Go to the area of free exercise of religion. Now what that means is two things. One is you have the right to exercise your religion, but you also... It also, that amendment, prohibits the government from exercising a particular state religion. The people who wrote the Bill of Rights were in part fleeing for religious freedom initially, and they didn't want the state involved in religion. And, of course, under Bush, we've seen much more involvement uh, of the state in religion. And you've seen social programs that go to religious uh, groups that are that are called, you know, the this whole way of getting social work and good, so-called good works done through religion and through religious groups. You've had cases in the Supreme Court that have said you can use school facilities now for religion. And you had a case this year uh, that was a real shocker. You know, normally, in the normal circumstances, a taxpayer, you or me, can't complain about the way government money is allocated. Um, that has to happen through the election of our government officials or our Congress. There is one exception, or there was one exception. If the government was funding religious activities or arguably religious activities, taxpayers had the right under the First Amendment to challenge those activities. This year, Supreme Court, five to four, said that taxpayers don't have that right uh, to challenge government-funded religious activities, uh, and that therefore, essentially, the government is going to be free to do that. So on both freedom of religion, on the right to protest, um, we're in trouble in the First Amendment. There were a couple of other interesting First Amendment cases this year in the Supreme Court that indicate how far down the road uh, we've gone into a, into a bad place. I'm sure people remember this case. A school a student, a uh, like high school student, when he was out of school, outside the school, 
held up a sign that said, Bong Hits for Jesus. What it meant, no one could really figure out. Uh, but the school disciplined him, even though he was outside the school holding the sign up. And it went to the Supreme Court. Again, five to four decision. Uh, the student had asserted he had a First Amendment right to say it. The Supreme Court, five to four, said no, he did not. And some of the justices even said there's no First Amendment rights at all involving uh, students in high schools. So, again, a serious cutback uh, on First Amendment rights. And then, you know, what they do is, what's fascinating about the First Amendment is they protect the First Amendment rights of corporations uh, to do certain kinds of of First Amendment activities that they might not give you or me. So, for example, a case that, again, was decided in the Supreme Court said that in political campaigns, corporations can give as much money as they want to issue-oriented advertising. And they can even mention the name of a candidate just so they don't tell us how to vote. So if the corporation uh, likes smoking, for example, and it wants to put up a sign that says, you know, this candidate, this candidate is, a, is in favor of gun control. We think gun control is a terrible idea. Corporations have now unlimited funds to be able to, or lobbyists, to fund that kind of campaign. So it's like the First Amendment with a vengeance, whereas if you give money to a political campaign of a particular candidate, you're very limited. So what it really does is increase it increases the powers of those who already have money uh, to get their issues heard. So what we have is this odd situation where First Amendment rights of us who are doing protests, uh, of us who, like this, this high school student, are being limited, but the First Amendment rights of those who want to spend a lot of money to get their message across uh, are actually being amplified. In addition, the uh, freedom of religion, it wasn't so safe to be a Muslim after 9-11. They were being rounded up, weren't they? You know, I'm glad you brought that out. Um, they did that, of course, less explicitly uh, than, than the Supreme Court saying you can round up Muslims, although we did have one case that relates to that. But, you know, we at the center represented hundreds of Muslims who were rounded up after 9-11, and they were rounded up only, really, because they were Muslims from particular countries. Even though they had done nothing wrong, they were out of status on their green cards, but they decided we're going to arrest and hold Muslims as terrorists. Uh, and that's what they did. And in one of the cases the center brought called Turkmen, the judge actually held that you could, in a discriminatory way, you, I mean, the uh, immigration authority could actually, in a discriminatory way, decide to round up people who were out of status solely based on their religion or any other reason. So that was clearly a major crackdown. Uh, so it is a bad time in this country, without question. Uh, to be a Muslim. And of course, there's been many criminal cases that have been brought against Muslims, um, many of them just complete failures or setups by, by the government. Uh, so I think to be a Muslim now in this country is uh, to be under suspicion. And in that sense, the First Amendment is really not protecting the free exercise of religion. Now, what about freedom of the press? When all of the mainstream media, TV, cable, uh, radio, etc., is owned by major corporations and uh, some defense contractors. Of course, we have freedom of the press on a smaller scale, certainly the Internet, little local newspapers, volunteer programmers, say, such as myself. But what do you think of freedom of the press? You know, we've said this for a while, that the concentration of our media in major corporations and wealthy corporations has made 
freedom of the press really illusory in many, many respects. What good does it do to me to stand, you know, in Central Park or to give a Internet article? Sure, it, it reaches some people, but nothing like the major media reaches. And so our influence is very, very limited. Uh, when they wrote the First Amendment, obviously, um, there were freedom of the press was quite different. There was a much bigger marketplace of ideas. There wasn't the corporate concentration. There wasn't radio or TV, obviously. Newspaper towns had 10, 20 newspapers in them. Uh, so there was, you know, huge contending ideas and forces. People would go around the country speaking. Again, uh, money didn't really control the media. Today, of course, uh, that's very, very different. Uh, in addition, that's been aided and abetted. It's not just that money is controlling it. The money controlling it has been aided and abetted uh, by by the government, the courts included, which have allowed media concentration to continue. Whereas at one time, I don't remember the exact rules, you couldn't own more than one TV station in a large market. Now they've loosened all those rules. Media companies can not only own more than one TV station, they can own media across the board. So they can own a TV station and a newspaper and a radio station, as far as I know, within the same market area. Uh, so it's allowed huge, huge concentration of media. And of course, to keep that media going, you need advertising, and you need advertising from very wealthy corporations. And wealthy corporations are not about to do advertising that talk about, let's give some examples. A lot of people would like to have you know, cars that give them 50 miles per gallon, but you're not going to get General Motors to advertise uh, if if the news media is saying we need better cars with this global warmer climate change, then General Motors is going to say, well, forget it, we're not advertising on your station. So it all sort of works together. The Second Amendment to the Constitution reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, what was the intent of this? This wasn't so that people could run around hunting wildlife, was it? Wasn't this uh, the right to resist tyranny? Was that the intent? What do you think? Well, that, I think that's right. I mean, this was not about the individual right to bear arms. This was about militias, and at that time they didn't have a standing army, and the right to call up a militia uh, to protect the republic, or to put down an insurrection, or if there was a problem. Um, it wasn't about the individual right to have guns in your house for personal protection. At least that's what I think. Now, there's you know, obviously a lot of debate around this among scholars, and so far the National Rifle Association has been winning that debate in Congress and otherwise, and not necessarily winning it because they're right, uh, but winning it because they've been able to intimidate um, members of Congress uh, about this issue. And it is a strong issue in this country, and they base it on you know, the frontier mentality and everything like that. So it's very hard to go against uh, the National Rifle Association. But certainly the Second Amendment did not mean uh, that individuals had a right as an individual matter to bear arms. Now, sadly, in this administration, uh, for the first time that I can recall it happening, Ashcroft, when he was Attorney General, actually put into one of the government briefs uh, that they now interpret the Second Amendment as the right of individuals to bear arms. Uh, so this is still a very contentious issue, but when you look at issues like the murder rate in the United States and the number of guns, you realize uh, that we're basically a, what's the way to say this, uncivilized society in which you know guns sadly rule a lot of people's lives. Uh, and I don't know how to say it more strongly than that. Um, but this is really, 
I think it's the highest murder rate in the world or, or second in this country. And it's directly attributable to guns. And it's only, you know, every couple of months we read about some slaughter in some school or high school or, you know, supermarket or post office. And at bottom, of course, there's a lot of causes, but certainly one of them is the idea uh, that guns are so freely available. And in fact, they won't even close loopholes. You know, they, they claim that, you know, you need to register to get a gun or have a background check. But then you find out that, well, yes, you need a background check, um, but at gun shows, which go on all over the country, uh, you don't need it. You can just buy the gun from the guy at the gun show. So a huge exception. Secondly, obviously, if you go into a gun shop and give a background check, you walk out of the gun shop, and on the next corner, you just sell the gun to the guy uh, who wants the gun uh, illegally, but you sell it. So we're not close on this issue, in my view. Uh, and the Second Amendment has been, I think, uh, completely stood on its head. I don't think anybody in their right mind would really say uh, that it's meant that individuals can uh, can have guns. Now, there's one thing I, I want to say about this, because, you know, it's one thing what the Constitution meant when it was written, and it's another thing to what it should mean today. Let's even assume the Constitution meant when it was written that individuals could could own guns, and even though they were for purposes of the militia. Does that mean that it should be interpreted in that light today in a situation where massive violence has ensued uh, because of the illegalities around guns and that there should be no restrictions? It obviously doesn't. The Constitution has to be interpreted in a contemporary way. An example of that, of course, was slavery, um, the women's right to vote. Of course, there were amendments put in on that to change it. Um, but you can't just say because the original the intent of the framers was X, that we should be hidebound by that intent today. And, of course, there's very conservative members of the Supreme Court who say that we're not going a whit beyond what it meant uh, when the Constitution was passed in the late 1700s. Now, as you pointed out, there was no standing uh, army in those days, and they were referring to militias. But if that amendment was written in order for people to be able to resist a tyranny, uh, how would that uh, uh, play out today? I mean, obviously, you can't resist the government with a handgun. I don't know what to think of that. Well, that's a good question you raise. I know in the 60s and the 70s, you know, there was there were groups of progressives and radicals who felt that you know they had a right to arm themselves against the state uh, for self-defense. I mean, I think you know the Black Panthers thought that, uh, and other groups thought that. Um, and so there's there's arguments about that. And my own personal view is um, that you know you're not going to overthrow this government or change this government uh, with uh, handguns, as as you seem to indicate. And I think that's right. And so I'm not. I still would rather see a safer society with fewer guns, feeling that you're not going to have in this country happen 100,000 people get guns and, you know, mob the White House. That's just not, that, you know, that happened in the French Revolution. But that's not today. I mean, the, the weapons and power of the government are so much stronger than a bunch of handguns, machine guns, or otherwise, uh, that, that that's not the way it's going to happen. And so I think that's an illusory argument, uh, that somehow we should be able to arm ourselves to overthrow tyranny. Tyranny is going to be overthrown. This government is going to be changed, whether through impeachment, elections, um, or through an overthrow, um, by the fact that masses of people will one day say, we don't want to be living under the conditions we're living any longer. We think, uh, whether you call it no health care, bad schools, you know, two million prisoners, 
all of those issues will someday seep into this the consciousness of masses of people in this country, and they might be able to actually then change a government that really doesn't reflect what the masses of people want. I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Okay, the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. How are we doing with the, the Fourth Amendment? Well, we could spend the whole hour on this one, because uh, there isn't much left. And as I opened the show, I talked about warrantless wiretapping, and that's the, the question of whether, or electronic surveillance, whether the government uh, can wiretap this conversation or any other conversation on the telephone, whether it can wiretap my calls abroad, whether it can look at my email. And that's a Fourth Amendment protected communication I'm having with you, uh, the right to not have my words essentially searched and seized by the government uh, or my email. Uh, and that's just one part of it. And, of course, what the president has done in this case, what Bush has done, is said despite a congressional law that requires a warrant, as does the Constitution, for all of this kind of, of surveillance, even if it's a warrant from a special court, uh, which is the so-called secret court, the president went outside of that and said, I have the right to wiretap anybody I want in the name of national security. And obviously a violation of the Fourth Amendment, a fundamental violation, and it really just throws the Fourth Amendment out completely. Because if the president can say, I can do anything I want in the name of national security, including electronically surveil you, um, then we really have no Fourth Amendment left. And it's actually in an interesting way. It's the one that's the absolute clearest violation of the Constitution in this modern time. I mean, torture as well is, but post-9-11. It's the one that Al Gore, when he gave a speech, called tyranny by the president, because what the president has done in that is taken the three judicial branches, the executive, the legislature, and the judicial, and said, I can do them all. Um, I can be the court that decides the wiretap. I can be the executive that makes the that makes the request, and I can be the judiciary that decides the legality. So he's doing all three, and Gore said that that's what James Madison, one of our presidents, called tyranny, and Gore said this is essentially tyranny. So the Fourth Amendment, even in that one aspect, uh, is probably the nastiest, the most outrageous, and the court so far, other than one judge, Judge uh, Diggs in uh, Detroit, saying this was unconstitutional, have just delayed and delayed. The Congress, Democrats and Republicans alike, have sat on their hands in this one, uh, and because they're, of course, afraid that they don't want to be seen as weak on terrorism. So that's one of the major issues. The other one, of course, that comes to mind is the ability of... uh, There's two others that are important. One is the ability of cops to stop you on the street, and what happens to that when the Fourth Amendment protects the right protects the right of cops not to arrest you without probable cause. And we can look at that in two, two different aspects. One is domestically what happens particularly in our communities of color or poor communities where cops go in, 
uh, they shake people down, they, they frisk them, uh, they arrest them based on very flimsy evidence. Even the initial stop is done because they're people of color. We had that in New York City. Uh, that's how Amadou Diallo, was, uh, the guy who got 44 shots here, was, was, was murdered based on, on that kind of going into a people of color community and not obeying the dictates of the Fourth Amendment that you need probable cause or at least reasonable suspicion uh, to stop somebody on the street. That happens massively across this country uh, in communities of color. And then, of course, we have its international analog, which is what happens to people all over the world who are picked up, kidnapped uh, by U.S. military, CIA, FBI, taken to places like Guantanamo, Bagram, and other places without any judicial scrutiny whatsoever. So you have it happening domestically, and you have it internationally. And that's the seizure of actual uh, people. So pretty, uh, pretty well gone, the Fourth Amendment. Uh, I can't, uh, it's very hard for me to, to understand how we're going to really get, get our fundamental Fourth Amendment rights back. And also, uh, with regard to the Fourth Amendment, uh, having to do with uh, searches and seizures, there's the entire Patriot Act legislation, which includes sneak and peek searches, access to records in international investigations, tracking Internet usage, uh, expanding the class of immigrants subject to removal, etc. Now, there's a, a huge area in that Patriot Act. No, that's correct. The Patriot Act gave the president a lot of powers under the Fourth Amendment, some of which may not be constitutional, and that includes going into your house without a warrant, um, that kind of, of power in certain circumstances. But what's most fascinating to me about the Patriot Act is that after 9-11, the president went to Congress and said, look, I need more power to do these kind of trackings, this kind of Internet email, this kind of sneak and peek. And the president got that authority from Congress in the Patriot Act, and it's bad, broad authority. And then what happened is the president went way beyond that. The president said, and we didn't know it at the time, that, okay, I have that authority, but I'm going to actually not even bother with using that authority. I'm just going to assert national security right without going to the secret court to do electronic surveillance. Some of the issues that you're raising depended on going to the secret foreign intelligence surveillance court. Some didn't, but the president really dispensed uh, with all of those. The Patriot Act does, though, has, of course, with regard to non-citizens, you know, is, is very, very nasty, not only in terms of the ability to hold them for a week or so without even going to court, but also the ability to, to get electronic surveillance of non-citizens in the United States. And also the, really the fact that it's not just the Patriot Act, but that they really have limited First Amendment rights. And we represent a lot of non-citizens. And, you know, it's hard to recommend a non-citizen, even a documented non-citizen, uh, it's hard to recommend that they go to any kind of demonstrations or protests or asserting any kind of rights uh, because this Bush administration is willing to go after people really based on their political views. And then, of course, Amendment 5, uh, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. It goes on to say, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. What is due process of law? Well, due process of law uh, is really the right to go into a court and 
based on what is considered traditionally to be the process that people are entitled to uh, under the law to be able to go through that process. So, for example, if you have a criminal case against you, the process is, and the um, the amendment lays it out, process you have to be indicted by a grand jury, you have a right to an attorney, which is, of course, the Sixth Amendment, uh, you have a right to make objection in court, you have a right to a jury that's, that's of your peers. Um, you can't just be summarily arrested, detained in prison, and not given a day in court, whether it's a civil matter or a criminal matter. A civil matter, you can't just have the government come to your house one day and say, oh, Michael, I don't think you should have a, a car and take your car away. You have to have a right to go into court and actually have a fair process in court. And and that's what due process is. And if you look at the Fifth Amendment, I mean, there's many, many gross ways in which you could just strike it out of the Constitution right now. Certainly for the people that we're representing at Guantanamo, these are people who are picked up anywhere in the world, taken to Guantanamo, never charged with a crime, and never having a day in court. Not just about habeas corpus, but never being charged with a crime. So they're not the Fifth Amendment isn't isn't being applied to them in any way whatsoever. The government would argue that not U.S. citizens are being held outside the country. They have no Fifth Amendment rights. Uh, but of course, that has yet to be seen. And the idea that the Bush administration can pick up any non-citizen anywhere in the world and hold them outside of the Constitution and the Fifth Amendment um, is pretty nasty stuff. And obviously then, so that's the, the biggest, grossest, most open and notorious way the Fifth Amendment is now being violated. Uh, the right to due process, the right to a day in court uh, is, is with people like those at Guantanamo. But obviously on, a, on another level in this country, you know, the Supreme Court has been particularly poor on protecting the rights of people, criminal defendants in particular, uh, to get competent counsel, to have juries of their peers, so you have like lawyers who slept through part of their trials, uh, the, the people still getting the death penalty. You had a recent case in the Supreme Court where a guy who was sentenced to a very long sentence was misadvised by the court on the number of days he had to appeal. The case goes to the Supreme Court, and they say, well, tough luck, even though it's not your fault. Um, so you've had a lot of fundamental rights uh, of people in this country to due process and to the Fifth Amendment stripped. And, of course, wealth plays a huge issue in that. Uh, people who have money obviously get much better lawyers and do much better in court uh, than poor people who often don't have good lawyers and get convicted very, very, very readily. I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Okay, let's take a look at the Sixth Amendment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, etc. How are we doing with regard to uh, speedy trials? Well, we have people who um, languish a very long time. And, of course, again, in the post-9-11 period, we don't give trials at all to hundreds of people who we are now holding in what you would have to call preventive detention, although I'm not sure what it's preventing, um, all over the world. And we're not giving uh, speedy trials at all. And we're generally not giving them attorneys at all. And I think that's just 
you know, it's appalling. Everybody thinks it's appalling. And, of course, as I mentioned, even in the Fifth Amendment due process context, even in this country uh, with criminal defendants, a lot of them are not getting competent counsel. Um, you know, a lot are obviously places, there's places that are more enlightened on that issue and, and have very good legal aid systems for poor criminal defendants. But there's a lot of places, Texas, Bush's state being one of the major ones, where even death penalty defendants oftentimes uh, have lawyers who are really ill-prepared and in many cases have actually rarely have ever tried such serious death penalty cases. And so they're not getting uh, competent counsel. Then you have people on death row who've been there 20 or 30 years and still trying to get their day in court to get their convictions looked at. And in the case of Mamiya, the man on death row in Pennsylvania, he's been there 25 years. His case was finally argued in the Third Circuit Federal Court with some very good issues that may eventually either get him a new trial or release him, and yet it took him 25 years. So I wouldn't call that speedy. And, of course, the Sixth Amendment goes on to say, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Now, these Guantanamo people haven't even been charged with anything. None of the above, right. They don't know the charges against them. Uh, They don't get confronted with the witnesses. There's a little sort of mock military thing. But when they ask to cross-examine the witness to see the witness, they can't. Uh, They put in an affidavit so you don't know anything about the witness. They often don't get to see the information because it's supposedly classified. So they get essentially kept in prison through a Kafkaesque system in which they can't confront the witnesses, they can't cross-examine the witnesses, and oftentimes they don't even know what the evidence is against them. And then the decision is made, you know, in secret, essentially. And then they're told, you're simply going to have to stay in Guantanamo. And you're also allowed to use evidence from coercion and torture in those cases. So clearly, uh, in the Guantanamo cases, none of the uh, Sixth Amendment rights are there. And you don't have an attorney in in those cases. And then, of course, the Seventh Amendment has to do with uh, the right of trial by jury. This right shall be preserved. Well, these guys aren't getting jury trials, are they? No, none of these, none of the uh, Guantanamo people have jury trials. Um, and, I mean, the government's argument here is that, uh, you know, the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Seventh Amendments simply don't apply to people like those at Guantanamo. Why, I am not sure. I mean, they claim is they're picked up outside the country, they're kept in places outside the country. But the question you have to ask yourself, is your right to a trial, is your right to charges, is your right to an attorney, is your right to a jury, dependent on the fact that the government decides to keep you outside rather than bring you into the country? certainly seems that it should not to me, uh, and it certainly seems that way to a number of judges who've tried to write on this. Uh, but so far, we haven't, uh, we haven't won on those issues. But the sad part is, Uh, If we don't win on those issues, we're looking at a model for the future in which um, something will have fundamentally changed in the country. The idea that you could give the executive the power to pick up people anywhere in the world and hold them forever uh, is something that, you know, really uh, is unheard of in my view. And, you know, it has its root that you couldn't do that in in the Magna Carta from 1215, uh, that that the king, the executive, cannot simply pick up people and hold them forever. And that's why the 4th, 5th, and 6th, and 7th Amendments are in our Constitution. Now, in our prior show, uh, we talked at length 
about how the courts had decided that the statutory right to habeas corpus, that is to challenge your detention in court, for non-citizens has been thrown out. And where we left it last time was the question as to whether or not uh, non-citizens had a constitutional right to habeas corpus. And I notice in the newspaper, the Supreme Court, it said the Supreme Court has reversed itself and will rule on Guantanamo detainees and their right to access federal courts rather than military tribunals. Does the Constitution protect the detainees? Is that the question that the Supreme Court is going to decide? Yes, very close to what the question is. The question is, does the Constitution give the right of habeas corpus to people at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba? And twice the court had ruled that it does under a statute, but Congress then took away the statute. Um, and now we're back we're down to the bare Constitution, which says the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended except in you know, cases of rebellion, invasion, and none of those are the present cases. So the question is, does it apply to people at Guantanamo? And what the court did at first in April of this year, it said we're going to pass on that issue. We're going to let's see what happens with the process, some other process Congress set up, and we don't want to pass on that issue. In the interim, the Bush administration was so off the wall, in my view, saying that we're not going to give these people any rights at all. We're going to start cutting back on the rights to an attorney, uh, et cetera, that the court, the court said, well, maybe we'll reconsider this, and now they actually, and it takes five justices to reconsider an issue that they've already turned down. Five justices said, we're going to hear this case. Now, does that mean we're going to win? You can't say for sure, uh, but it's certainly a hopeful sign after six years in prison for our clients, never having gotten into court yet, uh, that the Supreme Court may in, uh, in the fall uh, actually decide in our favor after hearing argument or in favor of our clients. But we don't know, actually. Uh, we're just hopeful. But the fundamental issue is, does the Constitution apply to Guantanamo? We lost that case 2-1 to one in the middle court, the Circuit Court of Appeals, um, and now it's going to be in the Supreme Court. And how's your lawsuit in Germany against uh, Donald Rumsfeld and uh, Gonzalez at all? Has there been any movement on that? Well, sad to say there has been. Um, we lost the first phase of it. The court again has said uh, that we think that the United States might still pursue Rumsfeld and others for torture, and we're going to give them a chance. So we're doing two things. We're appealing that case in the courts of Germany, and we're also looking to take a, an analogous case into Spain. It'll be slightly different. In Spain, we actually probably have a better chance right now because we have two Guantanamo detainees in Spain who are Spanish citizens who were tortured in Guantanamo, and we did not have that in Germany. We didn't have any German nationals at that point. And so we probably have a much better chance in Spain now of holding jurisdiction in Spain. But it's still, for all of us, it's just, to me, it's just an amazing situation we're in where we have an administration that can pick up people anywhere in the world, hold them forever without trial, torture them, wiretap all of us, diminish protests, and yet no one in this administration is being held accountable not by the Congress, not by the courts, uh, and not yet by, uh, by where we began this program, we the people. And also, where in the Constitution does it say that cruel and unusual punishment is against the Constitution? Is that in one of the amendments? That's there the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. 
says that it prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. The Supreme Court has um, limited that in many ways, one of them being to, you know, uh, sentencing situations. And the question is whether it applies to people like uh, those at Guantanamo. First, there's the issue of does it apply at Guantanamo, but secondly, there's the issue of of does it apply if the person hasn't been sentenced yet. Uh, it would seem to be a very technical reading to say it doesn't. Um, but, but, you know, that cruel and unusual punishment, that prohibition is reflected in treaties the United States has signed, um, the Convention Against Torture, statutes that have been passed pursuant to that treaty, the Geneva Conventions and its prohibition on torture and inhumane treatment. Those are all part of our Constitution because part of the Constitution itself says treaties shall be the supreme law of the land. And so that the treaties we've signed, which contain uh, similar prohibitions to cruel and unusual punishment of the Eighth Amendment, are again uh, part of our Constitution. And torture is torture, inhumane treatment, cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, just flatly prohibited. So on this July the 4th, 2007, Michael Ratner, what, how would you sum up our, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, our Declaration of Independence that we're celebrating this July the 4th? Uh, uh, in terms of where we're at now, where we've been, what would you say? I, I would not say this is a time of celebration. I would say this is a time to get us active, uh, to be fighting for fundamental rights. I never thought I'd be saying we had to fight for the fundamental right of habeas corpus or the right not to be wiretapped or the right to be charged before you could be held in prison. Uh, I would never have thought I'd have to say that. But this July 4th is really a time to say these are the rights we have as people, uh, and we are determined to get them back. I would say it's a very, very dark time uh, in terms of the the protections of the Constitution and the amendments, uh, both in terms of individual liberty as well as in terms of of the restrictions on governmental power. And it's really a time to energize ourselves and say, we will not let this Constitution and the rights embodied in it be taken from us. And one last thing, impeachment, the process of impeachment of the president and or the vice president is part of our Constitution, and yet the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, says that impeachment is off the table. Does she have that right, I suppose, as the Speaker of the House? Well, she certainly does not have that right. I mean, John Conyers, who's the House Judiciary head, could decide to initiate it on his own, but he apparently is taking uh, his direction from Nancy Pelosi. Look, I, I am, you know, I'm deeply disappointed, obviously, in the Democrats. We haven't been able to win habeas back yet. We did very little about the war. Guantanamo is still functioning. Uh, and there's been not one serious hearing in Congress to look at accountability of any of, uh, of, any of the president's violations of the law. Um, to lead to impeachment, you should have serious hearings on what the president and the Bush administration have done. Uh, the Democrats have said they're not going to look backwards, they're looking forward. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me. You can't look forward without looking at what this administration has done and what these laws still are. So I am, you know, I'm angered that impeachment is off the table. Uh, it's one of the clearest cases, I think, for impeachment that we've probably had in our history. Sure, we are all familiar from the lies about the war to warrantless wiretapping, uh, to Guantanamo and to torture, uh, we become an embarrassment not only to our own people and our own values and constitution, really, but around the world. Uh, and this is a July 4th uh, when we ought to call for uh, a renewal, really, of, of the moral authority of a, of a vital, vital constitution and bill of rights. 
Michael Ratner, thank you very much. Thank you for doing this. It's a great idea to do. been listening to attorney Michael Ratner. Today's show has been the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Michael Ratner is president of the Center for Constitutional Rights. He recently filed his second criminal complaint in the courts of Germany against Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and other U.S. officials seeking the initiation of criminal prosecutions against them for the Abu Ghraib abuse and torture, as well as for their actions at Guantanamo. The Center for Constitutional Rights has also successfully challenged sections of the Patriot Act and is litigating a major lawsuit on behalf of post-9-11 immigration detainees in the U.S., Michael Ratner has been adjunct professor of international human rights litigation at the Columbia Law School, lecturer at Yale Law School, and former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Visit the website www.ccr-ny.org. That's ccr-ny.org. Thanks to Todd Fletcher and Mickey Huff for research assistance. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at gunsandbutter.net. Or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. You dig me? You got me?